today on Ag News Daily. Just violate a lot of the interstate commerce clause and directly push hardship down into the farm level. So we're certainly, like I said, excited about getting the opportunity to present the case. Well, happy Friday, everybody. This is Tanner Winterhoff alongside Delaney Howell. Just before we get started today, a reminder that today's episode is sponsored by Ag Explorer International. Thank you, Ag Explorer, for your generous contribution. How are you doing, Delaney? I am doing well today, Tanner, except for the fact that yesterday it kind of started snowing here and I'm a little I'm a little bitter about it. The uh, If you can trust the weather, man, it won't be very long-lived. It's supposed to be a lot better this weekend. Okay, good. That is, um, um, thank you. That makes me feel better. <laughs> but we all know my opinion of weathermen. We talked about meteorologists already this that's, week. That's fair. Yeah. But that brings us right into something else we've already talked about this week, and that is the bird flu. Um, reported KCCI, local news source, has stated more than 200 people have lost their jobs in Buena Vista County, so BV County, due to the bird flu directly. A majority of those, or bulk of those, uh, come from the Rembrandt Enterprises egg producing facility outside of Storm Lake. So bulk of those infected birds were euthanized uh, and put down. Therefore, jobs, especially those with hourly wages, have been eliminated. So we're seeing the first fallout, Delaney, of the bird flu consequences hitting the wage sector. We certainly are, Tanner. And as you look at things impacting the wage sector, we are continuing to see Signs of a potential recession. Uh, the Bank of America is warning clients of a recession shock coming as inflation shows no signs of letting up. And the March CPI inflation could be 8% year over year. And so a lot of banks, including cent- the central banks, said that they're going to continue to fight inflation through aggressive interest rates that we talked a little bit on the podcast about yesterday. But the next Fed meeting, I believe, is scheduled for May 3rd and 4th, Tanner, so probably could be the next time we see a potential interest rate hike. Yeah, we I've got an article here that came from uh, who has kind of been the Fed spokesman, James Bouillard. Uh, he, again, as stated here bluntly, gave that the mission is to stop the exceptionally high rate of inflation and get it under control. So uh, they will need to move forthrightly you know, especially a very large word there for someone of very high stature to use and put into an article. But for him, that means before the end of the year, he wants to get that Fed funds rate above 3%. So that obviously indicates if he has anything to say, you know, his vote is going to go in the direction of a fairly significant hike come that first week of May. One month ago, for perspective, the U.S. Treasury it cost them 1.85% to borrow money for 10 years. So that's the 10-year treasury. Now, as of this afternoon, that is at 2.69. So that's an 84 basis point difference in the wrong direction if you're wanting cheap interest rates. And I don't see that, Delaney, slowing down anytime soon. Yeah, and I think the question is, I was looking at something, I think it was on Twitter yesterday, and I honestly didn't fact check it, so I can't verify if it's true or not, but it was talking about basically how much more money you need this year to live the same exact lifestyle that you lived last year. And it said it was something like $6,000. Does that seem accurate to you? That'd be pretty close. I mean, if okay. you, if you're living off of a hundred thousand dollar on income and inflation has been six to 7%, 
um, that would be, that would be pretty close. Okay. So that is a good way to look at it is thinking if I make X and I need to live off of X, then I need to make X percent, 6% more than I was making last year. That's correct. And then to put it back into perspective, because we did greet everybody with a fry yay <laughs> to let them know that it's not that bad here. So Sri Lanka's central bank doubled its interest rates on Friday. So this morning, it launched an unprecedented 700 basis points wow. inflate on their interest rate out of their central bank. So that's 7% causing they are citing the crippling shortages of basic goods driven by the devastating rate of inflation. So they are a very heavily indebted country with little money left to pay for any imports, including fuel, power, and food. Um, their bank, uh, I can't remember what they call him for a title. They call him the governor of the bank. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. States that uh, inevitably they're going to have to restructure their debts or forego some payments because the government of Sri Lanka are not going to be able to satisfy their debts as it's about a nine, uh, $9 billion bill with $1 billion of that coming due starting in July. Hmm. Okay. I haven't heard of, I mean, I think a lot of countries are having similar effects, but this is the first one that I've seen that large of an increase in. Yeah. And I think the, the more alarming rate to me is we are a very debt based world. Mm -hmm. All countries borrow money from a lot of under countries. So when one starts to default, how far down the pipeline does that go for everybody in the spider web to be defaulting on their debts? If Sri Lanka can't pay us, then we can't pay somebody else and down the line even further. Uh, so it'll be an interesting story to see how that unfolds. It certainly will. But I tell you what, I've got a kind of series of stories here that all kind of interweave a little bit here, looking at different components of, in this case, protein demand. But Brazil has been increasing feedlot use to meet the increasing demand of Chinese uh, imports of all things and cattle fattened to produce meat for the Chinese market has been increased pretty substantially here over the last year or so. Brazilian beef production rose about a fourth of the country's overall slaughter. And so is about 25% higher year over year to meet this growing demand of Chinese purchases. Not only that, Tanner, it sounds like I think this is being sparked by a few different reasons, one of which is we're still continuing to see China rebuild from African swine fever. And they it sounds like just don't have a lot of available protein on the marketplace right now, beef, pork, or otherwise. Because China also said their state planner on Friday announced they'll buy another 40,000 metric tons of frozen pork from state reserves, which is now I think the uh, fourth round of stockpiling this year that we've seen. And as we're continuing to watch China buy up beef, buy up pork. They're trying to increase pork production internally after dealing with African swine fever. They said they're about 29% higher of production year over year. But then here's the final nail in the coffin that may be interesting. An unknown virus has moved through a large portion of Australia, which has killed quite a few different hogs in the country. And this is a most mosquito-borne virus that is, I can't remember the name of it. It's a Japanese virus, essentially, but it has killed quite a few hogs across the country of Australia in the southern Wales 
territory specifically, but it sounds like uh, they don't respond well to antibiotics. And like I said, it's spread through mosquitoes and is similar in the same family as West Nile virus, but has been kind of increasingly alarming for folks watching the Australian hog production there as more cases are being cited day to day, Tanner. It sounds like China is short on protein and it's always unclear as to what their actual numbers are. And without accuracy there, we're never going to get truly an accurate market until they come in and start showing their hands with purchases. Because if they're increasing their swine herd, they're also going to have to increase their need for feedstuffs to create their own protein. But that is alarming with a potential another uh, virus to spread that may wipe out more of our protein network, whether it's poultry or swine. But Delaney, before we jump any further into this, I want to remind everybody that this week is brought to you, or this show is brought to you by Ag Explorer. We all know it's vital to have crop nutrients in, in the right source at the right rate at the right time and in the right place to improve ROI and yield. The team at Ag Explorer also understands that it's vital to have the right technology. They call it the fifth R of nutrient stewardship. AgX technologies and products are designed to enhance your yields, therefore maximizing your investment. If you want to know more, reach out by visiting agexplorer.com. That is A-G-X-P-L-O-R-E.com. So yeah, Delaney, that that's not good when we don't have accuracy on how well a country's doing. But I can tell you one other thing that isn't good is there are Dutch farmers that are having to stay awake all night to protect their cheese. So coming from the New York Times, there is a highly lucrative heist that has come out of a Netherlands dairy where a set of Dutch cheese farmers have been robbed. So they had their wheels of cheese, 161 wheels of cheese weighing over 3,500 pounds in storage that were taken in the middle of the night. Burglars came in, took two wheelbarrows, took their truck, loaded it all up, and were gone before morning. Authorities have found the vehicle and the wheelbarrows, but have not found the cheese. So that is the latest investigation going on in the Netherlands. But the good news, Delaney, is every one of these wheels has a serial number or identification number on it, plus the farm name stamped right into it. So we should be able to find it. So now I know if you're going to surprise me with a treat of some tasty cheese, I will be asking you where you got it. Hmm. I don't buy a lot of cheese wheels, so I think I'm safe to say I didn't steal them. Well, if you see me with one, you might get suspicious. I I guess so. There's a new market, it sounds like, for uh, the black market for cheese. Black market for cheese. That's exactly right. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, the... A lot of people question USDA's report numbers, but we did, of course, have a WASD report today and wanted to just run through some of those quick highlights with our listeners. I'm sure they've seen it on social media if they're active there, but really not a ton of surprises, but a few things were noteworthy, one of which was the USDA did officially bump down Brazilian corn production estimates by 2 million metric tons. We're now at a 125 million metric ton, which is still above both CONAB and quite a few private agencies, including StoneX's estimates. So still questioning, you know, if that is too high. Other numbers that we saw coming out of, excuse me, I'm sorry, that was soybean numbers. On the corn side of things, we actually 
actually saw the USDA pay Brazilian corn production up 1 million metric tons. So soybeans, they lowered corn. They actually increased U.S. corn stocks remained unchanged from last month. However, we did see increased exports noted on this month's report. I believe it was about 25 million metric tons. Uh, were increased. Oh, so I'm sorry. I'm missing this one up, Tanner. Soybean exports were <laughs> increased by 25 million bushels. Corn exports uh, were largely left unchanged. Wheat stocks uh, were down just slightly from last month, reflecting the Ukraine invasion. World corn stocks were actually up just slightly from last month. And all in all, pretty neutral report today. Um, it was interesting, though. They said in the WASI report headline in the government publication that Russia's recent military action in Ukraine significantly increased the uncertainty of agricultural supply and demand conditions in the region globally. The April WASI represents an ongoing assessment of the short-term impacts as a result of this action. So I think really trying to tip their hats there and say, hey, we have taken some of these things into account, but it's changing pretty much daily here. So uh, maybe a little bit of a cover your tail policy there as far as um, how they were pushing that information out. But they did reflect Ukraine wheat exports dropping yet again on this report, uh, about another 1 million metric ton compared to last month. And corn, they pushed down about 4.5 million metric tons coming out of Ukraine. So they're acknowledging that there is likely going to be a smaller crop coming out, less exports coming out of the country, but not a significant consideration, at least at this point in time. Yeah, I forgot how clean this podcast was to cover our tails, but uh, <laughs> I don't disagree with you one bit. It is. I, you know, My review is that it was also a pretty neutral report. Um, I disagree with the fact that they lowered the wheat exports by only 1 million metric right. tons. We we know and have discussed on this show throughout the last two weeks that there is nothing getting out of that country currently, and we don't see Russia pulling back. So um, take, listeners, this report for what it's worth. But all in all, I agree. It seems like to me that, that there was a lot of conversations in there, and this is all speculation, that every area that they lowered or increased was offset by either potential more production or potential more exports um, to where, yes, almost every category seemed fairly unchanged or at least nothing that was a surprise to traders um, as we look to see how the markets have done today. And actually, markets have done surprisingly well to finish out the week. We had pretty much green across uh, all markets today. So that was certainly some welcome news there, I'm sure, by folks looking to shore up positions heading into the weekend as we're getting closer, of course, to uh, May expiring and going into delivery period here. But in the meantime, we did see May corn close up 11 cents to end at 7.68 and three quarters. Decent new crop corn up 7 cents to close at 7.16. Soybeans today had more gains in old crop as we're seeing, again, a reflection of potentially increased exports for the marketing year. May soybeans up 43 and a half cents to close at 16.89. The November up 29 and a quarter cent to close at 14.95 and a half. Chicago wheat higher today as well with the May contract adding 31 and a half cents to close at 10.51 and a half. The July up 33 cents to close at 10.58 and a quarter. And I tell you what, actually, Livestock was a little bit mixed today. We saw weakness in live cattle and feeder cattle, but strength in hogs. June live cattle down 27.5 cents to close at 133. 
82 and a half. The August down 25 cents, settling the week at 135.85. May feeders lost a dime today to close at 159.37 and a half. And August feeders closed 72 and a half cents lows lower today, ending the week at 173.55. So certainly seeing still a lot of strength there in the deferred contracts. Lean Hogs had an opposite story today as the May contract added a dime to close at 108.42. The June up 42.5 cents to close the week out at 114.57. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the Class 3 Dairy Milk Futures, the May today added 8 cents to close at 24.78. The June up 13, settling the week out at 2472. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation today talking about the Prop 12 legislation going on right now in California. Well, folks, today we are catching up with NPPC President Terry Walters. Terry, thank you so much for joining us and chatting this afternoon. Thanks, Ashton. Uh, privileged to be here. Thanks for having us. So before we started recording here, Terry, you and I were kind of catching up. I asked you when you started your presidency, and that was earlier in March. So you're kind of fresh to the scene, kind of, sort of. I, I assume, you know, I want to talk a yep. little bit more about your pork background, of course, but you're new to the presidency. That's right. Yeah, we uh, just conducted our annual forum in uh, Louisville. It uh, took place the uh, March 10th and 11th. And so that's our annual meeting where all the delegates convene and, and do business uh, in relation to, you know, we're in a, a federation of states. And so states send their uh, elected delegates and that's how we uh, conduct national business. So, Terry, since you started your presidency, I feel like we've seen a couple of maybe hard-hitting headlines hit the pork industry, and one of those is actually dealing with Prop 12. But before we get into that, can you catch us up to speed on what's been happening in with Prop 12 for the past few months or so? You know, we haven't really talked about it since the first of the year, I feel like. Yeah, so... Since the first of the year, um, you know, we had filed a, a case, uh, an appeal, excuse me, for the case uh, back last year. And so that's been in the hands of the Supreme Court to try and decide whether or not they were going to take that case up. And so really what's happened since the beginning of the year is the uh, justices review those cases. As I understand it, in uh, the month of January, we were listed and uh, they went through a, a large sorting process. And fortunately for us, we, at that point, we were, we were not denied, but we were actually relisted. And so they go through that process, uh, for a couple weeks in January and then they, um, punt that to the next uh, review session that happened in February. Again, uh, getting some, uh, revisions. Uh, with new cases coming in, but they again relisted us. And so that moved us to the March, uh, evaluation. And then in March here, we just learned on Monday that, uh, we were accepted at the uh, Supreme Court level. So they have chosen to hear the case. So we're super excited about that. Uh, it's been a long road, uh, since this proposition was passed in 2018 and we're at least now going to get to go to the final steps of uh, uh, presenting our case. 
So Terry, this could kind of go one or two ways. If I'm picking things up correctly, could go in favor of pork producers really, but then we could also see Prop 12 go ahead and be instilled. Is that correct? Uh, say that last part again. Where Prop 12 could actually go ahead and, and be instilled in California because it's kind of on a, on a pause right now, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the ninth district court, uh, ruled in favor of, uh, the, uh, the other side and the, and at that situ- with that situation, they upheld the proposition 12 that was passed by the voters. So the challenge we have as producers right now is the fact that, uh, rulemaking was supposed to be done by, uh, fall of 2019 by the state of California, and that has yet to be completed. And so us as producers, we have perceived rules that we think are part of the proposition, but we don't have final rule. And so until you have final rule, we don't actually know what we're supposed to do to be compliant. So a group of businesses here in the early part of the year, uh, because the proposition was set to go into effect January 1st of 2022, a group of businesses filed another suit in the uh, state of California and uh, the Superior Court in uh, California then upheld their filing and has now granted us that until final rules are written and completed, producers have a hundred and they have a, a relief until that's finished. And then they will have an additional 180 days to be compliant as it stands today. But since all that's happened, the uh, Supreme Court has now picked it up, and I do need to get some clarity as to whether that process up th- uh, that's currently been decided is on pause uh, until the Supreme Court finishes. But at this point, until final rules are written, it still is on pause. So, Terry, we're talking a lot kind of about the the background situation and really what's going on with Prop 12 right now. But I really want to understand the gravity of the situation here. You know, uh, last summer when I was at World Pork Expo, Prop 12 was definitely a big issue at hand and definitely something that NPPC had spoken out about um Frequently, And so I want to cover the gravity of the situation a little bit more and really what it would mean for producers across the country if Prop 12 were to go through in California. Yeah, so in the event Prop 12 does officially go through, uh, it's going to uh, create a production practice system requirement that we believe is where they're headed with this is that uh, us as producers will have to maintain uh, 24 square feet of open pen gestation living space for uh, females when they become breed eligible in the gilt rearing facilities. But then also in the sow farms, we have to maintain that 24 square feet of living space um, post farrowing. And so once those sows are weaned after they've had their litter, they have to go directly to a pen and they can no longer be individually housed. So that's a large fundamental change for producers. Even if you're an open pen gestation producer today, you have a critical period of time from the when they're weaned until they're bred and actually confirmed pregnant is the rule we get to function under today. But through that period of time, we're allowed to use individual 
uh, housing. And so with Proposition 12, that will be removed as well, which as a producer, I have great concern that that sow or mother is in a critical time of her um, pregnancy and she has to compete with uh, pen mates for feed and, and uh, in, uh, in that environment. So that's a big change. And then in addition to the square footage, the 24 square feet, we actually have now increased the required area in which we have to give those animals. And so right now there's no rule as to how many square foot is required, but we often run more like an 18 to 20 square feet uh, living space square footage for those animals today. So about a 20% increase in space, which again causes us to have build a larger barn and uh, that just becomes more expensive. So Terry, kind of want to pick your brain on this really, but in the event that Prop 12 does become a reality, do you think that many producers outside of the state of California are really going to comply with this or just kind of say, hey, I'm just not going to market my pro- my my swine, my uh, pork to Californian consumers? Yeah, so the rule is that, as it stands today, it's fresh, fresh pork products that are marketed in the state of California would have to be compliant under this rule no matter where they're raised. And so... While I appreciate that some producers may take that approach, the challenge we face as a pork industry is the state of California, there's like 40 million people in the state. They're like a 14 to 15% of our total consumption happens in the state of California. And as an industry, I'm just not sure that we can ignore that market. Um, so it, I think you're going to have to, there will be producers that choose to participate but because of the increased building costs, they really would like to see somehow that they could be compensated for that added cost. Well, Terry, if our listeners want to follow along with how this goes in the Supreme Court or just follow along with what's going on with NPPC, where can they find you guys at online? Yeah, so I'm sure we're going to be on our NPPC uh, website. We'll have, probably have some periodic updates on there. Uh, but at the same time, I would expect that we probably won't be filing a lot or posting a lot of the uh, detail, uh, maybe just some uh, generic steps as to where the process is or the case is in process. But I doubt they'll be, you know, putting information out that directly impacts the case. Alrighty. Well, Terry, thank you once more for coming on and congratulations on your new NPPC presidency. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. look forward to talking to you in the future. And uh, like I said, we're certainly very excited about this opportunity and uh, feel like from a producer segment, we have a chance to make our argument known that we as producers that care for livestock every day have a very good understanding of what animals need. We work directly with our veterinarians on a regular basis. And so those production systems have only gotten better as time has gone on. And we as producers are genuinely concerned about our sustainability footprint. And this kind of a rule would uh, just violate a lot of the interstate commerce clause and directly push hardship down into the farm level. So we're certainly, like I said, excited about getting the opportunity to present the case. Thank you. 
Well, a good conversation there. It sounds like Tanner on the prop 12 that's going on right now. NPPC is obviously continuing to fight that because it impacts a lot of ways that hog farmers are able to do their job. Yeah, it's nice to have a voice on our side. But listeners, don't forget, today's episode is brought to you by Ag Explorer. So what makes Ag Explorer different? Well, they are the innovators. They're bringing together talent, global resources, and experience to face critical farming needs head-on. AgEx is an industry leader, developing field-proven, cutting-edge technologies that have revolutionized farming. They learn continuously because they know current knowledge is never good enough, forging ahead always with technology-driven products to enhance yields and maximize investments. AgExplore. And this is a farmer's champion. Want to know more? Reach out by visiting agexplore.com. That is A-G-X-P-L-O-R-E.com. And talk to an ag explorer today, right, Delaney? We coined them ag explorers. Yes, we did. I like that <laughs> term. I like it. We're all coming up oh. with innovative ideas, Tanner. That's why people need to listen to us. That's right. And they're probably sick of us by this time on a Friday. And mm. especially how cheesy the jokes have gotten. That's fair. They're true dad jokes, Tanner. You can't let that one slide. I I did a story about cheese being stolen, made a joke, said it was cheesy. You really gave me no credit for that. I don't think there was any credit, (laughs) though. That's fair. With that being said, Delaney, what do you say? Should we let people go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 